This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. If you've ever spent any time watching soap operas, you might have found that the characters in shows like Days of Our Lives are, well, not like you and me. That's even more true in Latino soap operas or telenovelas, whose characters have ridiculously romantic and sumptuous love lives, but who also suffer in the most baroque and dramatic ways possible because of them. If you watch enough of these kinds of shows, it seems like, yeah, sure, these people like love, but what they really go for is suffering. There's an element of this in some Spanish-language music as well. Take this song by Mexican Norteño singer Chalino Sanchez. In that song, Sanchez sings about the sufferings in his life, how they torment his soul, and how he'd just like a little peace. To be fair, Sanchez had real-life issues. He was ultimately shot to death. But his singing about his sufferings isn't something unique. Okay, so all of this, love, suffering, the exquisite pleasure of suffering, what are we supposed to make of it? Author Daniel Contreras grew up in the mostly Mexican-American border town of Brownsville, Texas, and his childhood was full of the kind of drama-packed media that I've been talking about here. Soap operas, Mexican B-movies, drinking music. As he got older, Contreras also came to love other kinds of media, and to notice some of the same tendencies in a lot of those as well. And Contreras, who is an assistant professor of English at Fordham, asked the same question, what do we make of all this? His answer is the book, What Have You Done to My Heart? Unrequited Love in Gay Latino Culture, which is out from Palgrave. Contreras joins me in the studio today to talk about what he found in his explorations of the dark side of love in literature, music, and film. Daniel Contreras, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Now, your work basically is about love, suffering, and popular culture? It is. I hope that doesn't sound too narrow or too or too depressing because it, it really is about trying to engage emotions in general you know how how why why is it that we how is it that we come to feel things the way we do and it seemed to me when i was thinking about these particular emotions which would involve unrequited love suffering sadness that we learn how to feel those things through cultural forms, through popular culture. The way that we listen to a sad song, for example, in some way is instructing us about what it means to feel sad and how to feel sad. And a lot of times we learn those things without even knowing that we're learning them. And sometimes we imitate what we see in order to authentically feel something, which is very strange if you think about it. We learn to authentically feel something through an imitation of a real feeling. So that sad songs, sad movies tend to instruct us. So that was the, the broader question. And then the more narrow or the more specific better question, it would be why in Mexican and Mexican-American and Latino culture are there so many representations of suffering and love? I wanted to start with that, which was dangerous because I was starting with a stereotype, you know, which means do Mexican people celebrate suffering more than other people or something? But I was fascinated enough to look at it and to look at it through literature, to, to see how it is that in Latino literature, there are instant, so many instances of different characters experiencing sadness and unrequited love and even just a general sense of melancholy. Where does that come from? 
Mexicans can't have a genetic DNA predisposition to, to sadness, I don't think. I don't think even the most crazed neurobiologist would, would suggest that. But it has to come from somewhere. And, and I guess my question that I don't answer really is where does that come from? Tell me the story of how you came to be interested in this very specific thing. Tell me about growing up and getting to know these kinds of media. I happened to read in one of my news sites this week that the longest-running soap opera had been canceled by CBS, Guiding Light. And it, was, it used to run on radio in the 1930s. It was a 15-minute radio serial. And in 1952, it became a TV soap opera. When I read that, it struck me because it reminded, I've always thought of Guiding Light, which I do not watch and have never watched, as something that my grandmother watched and then my mother watched. And I think that's where I, I became interested, not in soap opera so much, because ultimately, whenever I try to watch a soap opera, I find it disappointing and not as interesting as I want it to be. But the attachment that people have to soap operas and what it is that they get from them. And of course, soap operas or telenovelas are enormously popular still in Latin America. And I think that, but most specifically, I think the cultural form that I fell in love with, besides literature, would be film and movies. The idea of movies, as much as the movies themselves, you know, the whole experience of going to see a movie, the darkness and the, the projection, you know, the screen, all of these kinds of phrases that we use that resemble the dream world and the place in which things that, that you could see an entirely different world apart from yourself. I don't think I've ever lost that. And, and I remember being struck by that and, and how much we approach art, that we want it to do something to us. And more often than not, it doesn't but we still keep wanting it to do something. And I guess I've always been fascinated by music and by art and movies and people that have that sense of longing to them, you know, that there's a poignancy to that existence. You grew up in Brownsville, Texas, I which did. is a very famous town, both for its poverty and for its demographic makeup. You grew up watching Mexican B-movies and watching soap operas in English and Spanish and then later other kinds of movies. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, when you said that about the demographics, it's famous for its demographic because in many ways it's a, a very uh, undiverse place. It, it's pretty monocultural. I, would, I don't know the exact population ratio, but I'll bet it's about 90, at least 90% Mexican-American. So I grew up and grew up on the border and one, one, uh, there's some memories that stick out for me in terms of how they, they found themselves in my, in my book. And one of them was that I, I had an aunt who uh, was, she'll never hear this, but she's very eccentric in a way that's totally unselfconscious. And she worked at a movie theater called El Mexico, the Mexico. And, uh, they showed Mexican films and they weren't dubbed and they weren't subtitled and they ranged, they were melodramas, but they were mainly B movies. Mainly, I mean, well, at least the ones that I would go see because we would go on Saturday afternoons and we would see like the Mil Mascaras and the Blue Demon, the Thousand Masks and the, and the Blue Demon, uh, wrestler films and horror films especially were really important to me. I think I, I've always been drawn to horror films as much as to melodramas. My grandfather on my father's side was also an interesting character. 
my dad was born and raised in, in San Marcos, Texas, which is outside of Austin, in central Texas. And he, in his 50s, and he lived to be 103, in his 50s, he opened a bar, a cantina, outside of the city limits, because at that point, you couldn't have bars inside the city limits. And he had a, all it had were pool tables and a jukebox and bar stools. And I would go with him when we would visit on Saturdays, again, on Saturday mornings, and he would play all of this Mexican music on the jukebox and rancheras. And, and you know, this was bar music. This is this is the music that, that men would listen to as they got drunk and... And but the music was so sad and so poignant and so filled with suffering and so that that was also something I never got over and I'm still fascinated with that music. There's an element you you mentioned this and I certainly saw it when you were talking about it of of melancholy in in Mexican media and uh, telenovelas and in Mexican music especially of that laughing and crying thing that yeah, happens. Yeah. But um, there is there's this there's this incredible melancholy. I know why is it there? I I just that, and it's that position of melancholia, you know, of, of feeling sad, which is not a privatized personal sadness, you know, like where I wake up, and something happens, or I'm thinking about something, and I become sad, and so that it's a mood, and I think we understand that in U.S. culture because all our emotions are so privatized, so that I'm sad. But what does it mean to have a cultural mood? You know, what does it mean to feel melancholy that's not privatized or personalized because of something that's happening to you, but that in fact is part of an entire way of feeling? In the case of movies or telenovelas, what do the characters do that made you feel like, wow, this is weird. They're really into this suffering thing. They're really into this unrequited love thing. What what specific things did they do? Well, the the one um, the one writer a writer that I talk about a lot, both in my in my book and in my present work and in my teaching is Sandra Cisneros, and what I got from her that that clicked for me is that her characters with this sadness and everything is that they value their emotional life so much that there are so many characters in which love, passion is the most important part of their lives. Everything else is secondary. And I think that's what we see in soap operas and in, and in melodramas and in, and in telenovelas so in, and in these songs in which love, the experience of love, either a happy one or a sad one, is the most important thing that's happening. Now that's extraordinary. In, in, in the real world, that's lunacy. Isn't it? I mean, you're a lunatic if you live for love. You know, that's not practical. That's not pragmatic in any kind of way. And it definitely is not lucrative. And so I find it extraordinary that these characters are living their lives at the expense. Of, you know, everything else is, is, is just extra. It's, it's superfluous. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest in the studio this week is Daniel Contreras. Contreras is an assistant professor of English at Fordham, and he is the author of the book, What Have You Done to My Heart? Unrequited Love and Gay Latino Culture, from Paul Gray. In that book, Contreras explores some of the commonalities to be found in gay and Latino cultural forms. 
and he talks about why those commonalities might be there. Let's get back to our conversation. I want to get into um, the stuff you actually talk about in your book. Some of these concepts are really interesting, and they're phrases that are words and phrases that we hear around a lot, but don't actually think about all that much. You talk about several different concepts that are popular concepts in gay culture. Tell me what you talk about in this book about about camp. I think when I hear the word camp and can't be that something is campy used is when people are wanting to describe something that is so horrifically awful. And so that a movie is so bad, you know, it was campy, it was unreal, it was exaggerated, it was inept. Kind of like kitschy. Right, which is tasteless and vulgar and and of no real aesthetic interest. But that that's kind of a, a vulgarization of camp, so to speak, or, or the definition of camp, because... It, it loses a lot of its a lot of its focus. Is it just another way of saying bad, you know? Of, and so, but part of the philosophy behind camp that I that I find fascinating is that in fact what camp was trying to do was to rescue something from denigration, you know, to say this actress was really bad her performance, but her performance was so campy, meaning not just that it was bad, but in in fact, it contained something authentic in it, that it's a way of rescuing, you know, objects, works of art, performances, movies, trash, debris, things we throw away, things that are of no value whatsoever, and saying there might be some beauty in this. There might be some truth. And, it, it, you know, it's, a, it's, a, 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 it's in some ways it participates in commodity culture because it's a way of, of wanting to rescue consumer objects but also it works against that because it's it's wanting to not say that things are only valuable for their usefulness they're not only valuable because they are valuable because they cost a lot of money but that in fact we can find poignancy even in objects that have that a society deems of having no value it's also anachronistic in some sense because i don't think anyone really does that anymore the the picture that i have of of gay urban men doing this would definitely be in pre-Stonewall or pre-1969, you know, in which camp was a kind of code, you know, an underground kind of code and not one that would have even been available for uh, for commodification or publicity purposes. You know, it was kind of a secret code in some way. Um, I think you still see a little bit of it, you know, in which why do certain singers, movies, actors receive so much gay attention and others don't. You know, why 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 this one and not that one? I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of a mystery. And one of one of the denigrations of camp or one of the ways in which it's become vulgarized is through stereotyping. So that all gay men like Barbara Streisand is kind of a version of it or or show tunes or I don't know, any number of stereotypes that people have about gay taste tends to become equated with camp or or effeminacy or I, I don't know any any number of of stereotypes what does camp mean though at its most you know what somebody said well what are you talking about when you say camp what is it you know what does that mean what would you say like in a sentence I guess I what I said earlier I, for me camp is an, uh, a way of appreciating what is not broadly appreciated because it's seen as, because it's broadly interpreted as being of either 
of no aesthetic interest or sometimes because of its exaggerated emotional quality. I remember seeing, you know, it's, it's like uh, seeing a performance in a movie in which people, like where, let's say, the, the lead character, this woman, I'm thinking about, um, I saw this film many years ago in San Francisco in, in, in the Castro Theater, which is located in the gate area of San Francisco, the Castro. And so this was predominantly a gay audience, but they, it was Visconti's Rocco and his brothers. And the central character, the, the mother, has this really intense, exagger- I mean, just seems so exaggerated uh, quality, and people were laughing. And that, that laughing at, because at, it was too much, it was too much emotional excess for anyone, for these people to take in. And I found that very disturbing because, it, you know, there was something unpleasant for me to to see that and i think that 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 can be a way of people dismissing and that goes into why we would why some people would laugh at soap operas or melodramas or any kind of emotional excess and i wanted to rescue emotional excess you know it's that you know there's something real there there's a there's some authenticity of feeling that perhaps a, a culture that wants to feel more in control of itself and wants to police any form of excess, you know, feels uncomfortable with. We started out talking about about Latino culture and sort of emotional expressiveness, and we just mm, talked about, about gay culture and emotional expressiveness. <laughs> What's the connection I, between you know, those two things? That that is a great question, and that's the one that I've tried to puzzle through. I guess it, why did you bo- stick them together? Yeah, yeah. Why did I stick them together? Because they both valued in what I saw were both valuing excessiveness and valuing on an emotional excessiveness i mean and and having experiences with and valuing what it felt like to be unhappy to to feel unrequited you know and that maybe it's that word unrequited you know which means that something is not returned i think in if you grow up and if you live in a world in which you are marginalized your relationship to that world is going to be unrequited to a great extent you know, in all kinds of ways, economically and emotionally. And, but something has to, so how do you express that feeling? How do you express that sense of not feeling whole, of not feeling as an active, equal participant, you know, in, in what could here would be the, the game of love, you know, in, in a world in which, for example, gays and lesbians are not accorded, you know, equal rights, you know, what, what do you do with the experience of love? You know, how, how do you account for your emotions in a world that devalues them, in which they're a joke? This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. A little later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey on today's show, The Hidden World of Supers. That's ahead at 7.30. First, though, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Daniel Contreras. In the book, Contreras talks about the links between camp and race. I asked him to tell me about that. Camp and race was a, was a difficult question, too, because camp also participates in a, in a sense of um, not wanting to have respect Fact, for example, for cultural boundaries. And so one of the uh, plays I talk about is the 1968 
Mark Crowley play Boys in the Band, in which we have um, a black character, a black gay guy, who all the other gay guys who are white kind of make him an object of, of ridicule and spectacle and and make racist jokes, but in in gay humor. You know, and in many, I, I find those that kind of humor still racist and, and unacceptable, but it was being done in a different way. I mean, not, again, not in an acceptable way, but it was being inflected differently because it was coming through uh, gay humor. And I think you still see examples of that in gay culture to a certain extent with different kinds of, of mockeries of, of racial differences that are made, are said to be funny. And so that was disturbing. But then it was also that this that Latino and and black cultural uh, formations or, or images were being used by uh, by camp by by gay camp in the nineteen fifties and early sixties, for example, like uh, images of Maria Montez, you know, were were seen as high camp as a way of mocking a kind of uh, excess, you know, that that was present in in these characters. Who is Maria Montes? She was a really famous uh, uh, actress from, I think she was from the Dominican Republic and, and made these B films in the 1940s, but was became really important to Andy Warhol and to Jack Smith and other people who were working in the, in the cultural avant-garde of the early 60s. And it was because she would do a movie like Cobra Woman in, in which she, you know, the exotic excessiveness became another way of thinking about camp. Sort of a Carmen Miranda. Exactly. That's that's probably a better. That's a great example. So like Carmen Miranda is a joke, you know, because she's camp, but also did important cultural work for for people that were um, able to see through laughing at her and seeing the kind of cultural uh, the way she was participating in a, in a culture. Yeah, I mean, putting a bunch of bananas on your head and dancing is not something you would typically see now in sort of mainstream theater, but it is something you'll see in a drag show. Oh, absolutely. Now, let's talk about drag. You also talk about that. I do. I think it also came because I had such a great fascination with drag shows, just because they seem to be keeping alive uh, a form of entertainment that didn't seem to be present anymore. Um, and really in that, it, to me, I always think of drag as really like old school entertainment vaudeville even, you know, like sing some songs, make some jokes, change costumes. You know, you don't see that in, in U.S. entertainment life very much. It's kind of like the demise of the variety show, you know. And and so I like that. I, I like I always was drawn to, to that form. And also there's, again, at the risk of, of stereotyping. There's a great, for some reason, a lot of drag performances are by black and Latino gay guys. I mean, I, I would say the disproportionate to, to white gay guys. And I just wonder why that is. There's just something within the community, again, that, it, you know, is it that issues of masculinity and femininity are more of a spectacle within these cultures? You know, that, that women are Latinas historically and traditionally, you know, have have presented themselves more visually than, than, than for example, Anglo-American women in their participation in dress and makeup. And, and so that this, you know, presents like this is what a woman looks like. You know, so, I don't know. I mean, there's just all there's there's all kinds of interesting questions that remain unanswered. 
It's also worth mentioning that the variety show is very much alive in if you watch, you know, Telemundo or anything on the weekend. That's true. It's they very still, much alive. Yeah, absolutely. But in the U.S., for some reason, it's it's seen, I, I think, as, a, as an unsophisticated form of, of entertainment. You talk about tons of different books and movies in your book. You talk about The Boys in the Band. You talk about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, the movie Paris is Burning, and the book Kids of the Spider Woman. But I want to ask you about something you don't speak about, which is the sort of unification of a bunch of different sort of marginalized cultures in the person of Morrissey. You know, that's a great question. You know, he, apparently he has a huge Latino following. He has a huge Mexican following. Absolutely. And I, I find that, I mean, that for me, that proves my thesis, doesn't it? <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know, for a lot of different reasons. And I know that in, in Southern California and Los Angeles, you know, among the Mexican-American youth, like, they just love him. They worship him. You know, and, and he seems to return that. You know, there's different ways that he signals a kind of... Uh, attachment or awareness of, of Mexican culture. Like he wears a, a Mexico belt buckle sometimes. Absolutely. And um, I, and the, 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 I think that his music, of course, is filled. I mean, and notice, too, the ways in which his music and his persona are, cons- are almost consistently dismissed or trivialized by people, by critics, by by. Uh, uh, people who, in fact, aren't that aware of him, but kind of know of him. Oh, yeah, he's the guy that's always sad, or he's the one that that's always whining, or or talking about, you know, you know what I mean. There, there's an over, there's a way in which he's so generalized and dismissed, and that's exactly the kind of dismissal that I try to fight against. You know that it's much more complex than that. That there is a place you know, in the culture for feeling unhappy and dissatisfied and that something beautiful can come of it. You know, I, I, Morrissey, the, I'm thinking that I think that the Smiths, this is probably my own background, but the Smiths were probably more important to me than, than Morrissey, so to speak, although, of course, you know, he's so important. But I'm thinking that the, the, the different songs by him, you know, definitely capture, I think, the spirit that I try to write about in my book. Well, there's this, um, there's, I read an article about this. And in that article, they have one guy, a Mexican-American guy saying, you know, when I hear that song where he says, if a 10-ton That's exactly truck, the song yeah. I was just thinking about. Right when I said that, I was thinking, there's a light that never goes out. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> I mean, he says that that song just makes me cry, you know, and it's embarrassing, but I can't help it. And in that song, he says, you know, to die by your side. Side which such a wonderful way to die. <laughs> and it, it has this space for feeling this just fantastic melancholy, which is, I think, what people really respond to with the Smiths and Morrissey. But or it's don't. such a yeah, or are totally annoyed <laughs> by. <laughs> but it's such a great coming together of these two very diverse cultures. It, oh, I, I thought you were going to say it's this great coming together of two diverse emotions, which is complete well, elation too, yeah. and <laughs> and an oblivion of death. Right? You know, so uh, maybe is that kind of struggle between Thanatos and Eros, right? You know, the, the, the death drive and the sex drive be, being uh, described in the song. But that's definitely both in the music and the lyrics that that captures that, again, that, that what I hope animates all of my work, you know, is that there is a, a great splendor in being sad. 
you know, and and not it's it's what I try to tell my students about wanting to disenfranchise um, these emotions from the way they've been commodified, so that it's not to say to be mopey is good, or but to say that to feel sad is to feel something authentic, and to feel that what is going on around you can be internalized. And and that's something we forget. I think that we forget how to respond to our to the world around us for various reasons. I guess it's also what I tell my students about hope. You know, that I don't want to think about hope in, in a Hallmark greeting card kind of way or the ways in which it becomes a, a rationalization for the world that we live in. No matter how bad things are, you got to have hope, you know, that sort of thing. But instead that where hope can be a, a form of of uh, disturbing the status quo, it's it's going against what the grain, it's going against what really is in some ways rational. Well, Daniel Contreras is the author of the book, What Have You Done to My Heart? Unrequited Love in Gay Latino Culture. Thank you so much, oh, Daniel. Thank that you, was Norm. fascinating. And thanks for reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> it means a lot. Take me out tonight Where there's music and there's people and the young and the light. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org this has been Fordham Conversations. The show is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a fabulous weekend.